Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So watch this. Because he loved them, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Drop down to verse 17. We'll read through verse 26. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. That means he's dead. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, yes, yes, I know he will rise again on the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Drop down to verse 32, and we'll read through verse 35. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then verse 43 through 46. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had, who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen and strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And one final addendum, verse 53. So from that day on, they, that's the Pharisees, made plans to put him to death. This is the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God, may it stand forever. Well, since we move through that rather quickly, a whole chapter of the Bible, his friend, three verses. Let me give you just a review, some, set the context here. Jesus finds out that his friend Lazarus, a close friend, so close such that his sister simply have to say, the one who you love is ill, and Jesus is supposed to know who that is. But Jesus understands that this sickness and death in Lazarus' life is not ultimate, but that actually this sickness and death that will come upon Lazarus is for the glory of God. And then we are told something distressing, and I pointed it out as I read through. It says that because Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, because of his love for them, he stays away from them for another two days, and it's during that time that Lazarus dies. The problem here, Jesus' decision to allow us to suffer. It is out of his love, he says, and it is for his glory. Jesus doesn't go running to save Lazarus, and he says it multiple times. The people's response is, if you had been here, if you had been here, if you had been here, we are looking at the heart of Jesus. And this is a troubling aspect about the heart of Jesus. See, and, and is there anything in life that is more acutely 
uh, makes us question the goodness of God and the heart of Jesus than our suffering and the suffering in this world. Suffering is a dilemma for us. How could such a good, good God allow this in my life? In the midst of this troubling reality, how do we see the heart of Jesus coming and being poured forth into the life of sufferers? Jesus says, I love you, Mary and Martha, and because I love you, I'm going to let your brother die. Because I love you, I will allow you to sit in anguish for days on end. Because I love you, I will allow you to go through grief and sorrow and suffering. And you're saying, wait a second. So the God who loves me is allowing the trouble in my marriage, the, the, the sickness with my parents, the loss of job and the financial trouble in my life, my, even my mental unhealth. He's allowing these things because he loves me. The love of God and the suffering of saints is a dilemma. It is difficult for us to grasp. And this is important. The Bible rarely gives us direct responses to our suffering. And rarely, in particular, it never gives us a, 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 a correlation one-to-one. You suffer, I bring this suffering in your life because of X, Y, and Z. You suffer and I do this. But the Bible does not provide a theological treatise for the reasons for suffering in general, but the Bible provides us as its main answer to our suffering a person. A person. See, the Bible's answer to suffering is in its argument is bound up in the person, the work, and the very heart of Jesus. Jesus says, I allow suffering in your life because I love you. And we go, huh? And so in order to believe him when he says that, we have to come to a deeper understanding of his heart for us. Saints, saint this, saints in this room, you who have suffered, who are suffering currently or who wait the day, with chagrin, you weigh the day when you will suffer. I want to increase your faith in the severe love of God by pointing the, this morning to a bizarre and place at the core of who Jesus is, his guts. His guts. The phrase here in verse 33 is a critical one. It says that when he sees Mary weeping in the crowd, weeping over the death of Lazarus, it says he was deeply moved the language there, the Greek word is splancho. <laughs> it literally means guts or intestines. And it sounds like something that you would say, right? If you're a little Greek kid and you're going around and you see a squished animal on the roadside and you go, ew, look at it, splancho. It comes out of your mouth like guts and intestines. What it's saying here is this, is it's actually, this is the same word that's used to translate as in compassion and pity. It's saying that the, from the core at the deepest place of who Jesus is, that when he looks upon our grief and our suffering, he has compassion for us. He has compassion. So if we're to understand the severe love of God, then we have to, if we're to grow in our trust for that, then we have to see the guts of Jesus. In other words, the compassion of Jesus. We begin simply with this. Let's look at the heart of, of compassion and how it plays out in Jesus' interactions with sufferers in this passage. First, his compassion. We see his compassion. It begins with his eyes. The compassion of Jesus begins in his eyes. The first thing Jesus does when he looks at sufferers, when he deals with compassion, is he looks at them and he sees their sorrow and pain. Verse 33, it says, when Jesus saw her weeping, we have the phrase that says love at first sight, but compassion also begins with sight. Begins with seeing and looking. To sufferers, Jesus wants to look you in the eye and say, I see you. I see you. 
I see your hurt. I see your fear. I see your tears. I see the deepest parts of the hurts that you don't even yet have the courage to admit they're even there. I see you. And the heart of compassion is put on display by the eyes of Jesus. And by that, I mean the fact that he gives attention to our sorrows and our our tears. The entire body pauses and listens was what it's saying here. And he absorbs the feeling of another. It's like if you have had this experience as a, as a parent or perhaps when you have a little a nephew or niece and they're trying to tell you something and you're not paying attention to them and they're trying to tell you it over and over again. And let's be frank, you're probably on your phone. You're on your cell phone and you're not giving them attention. And so that little child will grab your face and pull your face to give, to give attention to their eyes. And they say, look at me, daddy. Look at me. The gospel mentions Jesus over and over again, at the beginning of his compassion is the fact that he looks and he sees. He grabs, our suffering grabs his attention. Over 40 times in the Gospels, it says, or refers to Jesus as looking, seeing. Here's some examples. Matthew 9, 36 says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Luke 7, verse 12 and 13, he goes into a city called Nain, and there's a, a woman who is out leading a funeral procession for the death of her son, and it says, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. In Mark chapter 10, a haughty, arrogant, young, rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks him how he can be saved, and Jesus sees his lostness, and it says in verse 21, and Jesus looking at him loved him. And even on the cross, even the cross, the eyes of Jesus are filled up not with his own issues, but with the issues and the hurts of those around him. On the cross, he looks out and he sees his own mother in the crowd, and he looks at John and says, take care of her. And this is not simply even found in the real-life interactions of Jesus. It's also central to his teaching. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, there's a priest and Levites that go past Go, just walk past a suffering man who's been beaten on the side of the road. But then in verse 33, it refers to a Samaritan. It says this, as he journeyed, he came to where the beaten man was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. The Samaritan sees, he has compassion, and he acts. Because the Samaritan sees a person, not a problem. The priest and Levite were occupied with the man as a problem, he sees him as an image bearer. And so he looks, he sees. Compassion begins with seeing, with looking. There was a time in Mother Teresa's ministry, you know, the core of her ministry was to serve lepers in India. And that she would establish these leper colonies. And there was one particular place that she was looking to establish a colony. And the people of that community were saying, no way, we don't want a leper colony next to our suburb. You don't want lepers next to your wandering in your neighborhood. And she said, they disagreed, they fought against it until one day they saw the lepers and then they understood. They saw them. They saw the agony and the suffering. And the gospel suggests that when we watch Jesus, when we see him living his life, when we see his eyes on the suffering of others, we are seeing God love us. This is not new behavior for God. God has always been a God searching and wandering the earth upon looking for those whom he can be compassionate and loving and kind. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, he looks out and he sees Israel and Egypt and it says this, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. In Genesis 16, there's this story of a woman named Hagar. She is a maidservant to 
Sarah. She's Sarah of Abraham's personal possession. She is treated as Abraham's sex toy. She is impregnated, and then an insecure Sarah abuses her, and so she flees into the desert. But at a place that can be described only as a God-forsaken place in the desert, God shows up in the form of an angel, and she responds, you are the God who sees, who sees. Psalm 31, verse 7, the psalmist says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction and you have known the distress of my soul. See, God sees in the eyes of Jesus, the eyes of Jesus, give God a face. That he looks upon our sorrows and sufferings. The suffering God allows is a troubling mystery to us. Our suffering grieves our souls. It confuses us and it makes us question and wonder, has God abandoned us? Has he forgotten us or does he see me? In fact, this is the cry of the psalmist on multiple places. That this is, this is Jesus engaging one of the aspects that is so hard about suffering is the belief that perhaps our suffering means that God has forgotten us. Where are you, God? We see the psalmist cry out over and over. Psalm 77, verse 8 and 9. Has your steadfast love forever ceased? Are your promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Psalm 42, verse 9. I said to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? This is the heart of a sufferer. This is one of the first questions we ask. And the heart of Jesus shows up and he sees to communicate to us, you are not forgotten. You are not abandoned. And this is the heart of your God, right? We see it at the very the heart of one of the great stories in the Bible that Jesus tells, the parable of the prodigal son, where the parable, the son runs away, squanders his money, wishes his father dead, lives a terrible life, then runs home and begs for forgiveness. But it says this, before he could beg, in Luke 15, verse 20, it says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. So he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. To spot his son from a long way off, the father had to be scanning the horizon day in and day out, putting in all his energy to look for his lost son because he was looking. He longed to see. This is your God. This is the heart of Jesus. He sees first. Second, I want you to see the compassion of Jesus, the compassionate heart of Jesus by looking at his tears. There's another question that we ask in our suffering. You see, there's a question that comes bubbling up. You kind of say, well, isn't that nice that Jesus sees, sees me, that he is looking at me? And then it hits you, wait, that leads me to another question then. Wait, he is looking? He, he knows about my sorrows and I'm still suffering? And so we ask the next question in our suffering, which is what? The first one is, have you forgotten me? Have you left me? Have you abandoned me? And the second one is, do you care? Do you care? Does he care? Look at John 11, verse 33 and 35 again. It says this, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, it says he was deeply moved. That's that guts. The depths of his soul churning, moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then finally, simply, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. I love the starkness and sheer brevity of that verse because it helps us feel the weight of it. The simple, profound weight. Wait, this is, understand, this is weeping. This is not leaking. Leaking is what you do when you watch a really emotive movie. 
And with your eyes get a little misty and you kind of look around the room wondering if other people are seeing you, no, this is weeping. This is chest heaving, stomach nodding, weeping. The word here for deeply moved is the word we use, as I said already, is the word for compassion. This is what it is to have at the depths of your being a longing and a hurt and a grieving over what we see. Now, why would Jesus weep? Why would he weep? Here's why he weeps. Because he's perfect. He's perfect. We look at weeping and we think there might be something wrong with us, something emotionally unstable with us, and it might be. We see look at and weeping and we see weakness, but it is his heart response to sorrow and suffering and death, and this is important. Jesus felt emotions, not because he was less than God in his incarnation, Remember, the doctrine of Jesus is he is fully God and fully man. And the fact that he weeps does not show that he's something less than God, but actually the the divine one coming to weep in our presence shows that this weeping and this emotional response is a perfectly righteous, good response. That when you see death and sorrow and suffering, it is righteous to weep. It is righteous to weep. And with Jesus, we have one who is perfect, who is divine, who is without sin. And thus, when we see the emotional life of Jesus, we see the emotions expressed in perfection. We see Jesus simply falling into grief. And it is not an act of immaturity. It is an act of utter righteousness and perfection. And what I want you to see here is then joins Mary in her grief. He sees And then he enters in. And joining a world grieving over death, he addresses our loneliness and our isolation, and he reveals to us how deeply he cares. And in this, he also provides what we so long for in the midst of suffering, which is connection. Connection. The thought that, do you care? Do you care? Well, the way in which we communicate that best is not actually through our words. It's through coming close. It is entering into their emotions. We, we use the word empathy. There's a well-known popular level sociologist by the name of Brene Brown. Many of you have probably heard of her. She has many YouTube videos, on TED Talks on, that have tens of millions of, of views. She's a New York Times bestseller. But she summarizes empathy this way in this little cute video that's, been, that's all over the internet. It says this. She said, the ability to take, empathy is the ability to take the perspective of another person and to both see and feel the emotions of others along with them. She goes on to say this, rarely can a response, verbal response, make something better, but connection, real life relational connection, can actually help someone feel better, can actually bring a salve to their grief in the midst of their suffering. You see, what this means for suffering saints is that when you weep, there is an echo of it in heaven. That when you weep, there's an antiphonal sound. The idea of antiphonal is when two choirs, there's two choirs and they respond back and forth to each other, that maybe there's an echo to each other or one says something and one responds and that's how heaven, the voice of heaven, when you grieve, when you weep, there is weeping from the heart of God. Because he is perfect in love, 
He will not close his heart even for a few minutes. He will not refuse to enter in. No, he comes close, he comes near, and he actually takes on your grief. When it says on the cross that Jesus takes on our suffering, when he takes on our sin, it doesn't simply mean he takes on the bad things you've done. It means he's taken on your very sorrows into his body. And so the heart of Jesus looks for us. He sees, he moves towards, he joins us in sorrow and suffering. But then, understand, his heart is moved into action. His compassion, if you're going to see his compassion, you have to see it in his actions. Jesus sees death. He hates it. He is moved by it, and so he engages with the problem. And since Jesus is not limited like you and I are, to merely symbolic acts of kindness, a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, as great as that is. And since Jesus is not simply limited to the temporal addressing of our needs, and since Jesus is not simply wanting to provide band-aids, he goes to the core of the issue, doesn't he? Lazarus, come out. He goes right to death. He deals with the core matter. Jesus' heart overflows into action. He feels compassion. He sees, he hurts, and he does something. This is where we, the modern therapy language of empathy must actually be replaced with the Bible language of compassion because it involves all three. Look, feel, and then do. As is often stated these days, the bumper stickers and shirts and books say, love what does, right? You've seen that as bumper stickers? But the doing of love should not be separated and cannot be separated from the looking and the feeling for it to be a love like Jesus's. If we help someone, but don't take the time to look at the person and feel what he or she is feeling, our love is cold. That's, I'm tired of this problem. I'll write a check and deal with it. But if we also, if we look and feel, but don't do therapeutic, well, our love is cheap. That would remain, our love would be remain merely as something therapeutic. But love does, dot, 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 both. It feels, it feels, it sees, it feels, and it does. And by the way, this is the great fear we have of seeing and feeling, isn't it? That well, I mean, we might be asked to do something. <laughs> like, for example, have you ever driven up to a, um, you're driving a, along to a stoplight, and you see that there's a, maybe a homeless person or, or someone in great need, and they have the sign, and they're right there at the corner, and the, the light turns yellow, and you go, oh, no. And then it turns red, and you stop, and you're the first person. It's an awkward moment, isn't it? I mean, suddenly, you're, very, you're like cleaning up the trash in your car, and you're looking for loose change places, and you're, you're like really trying to take in the billboard. What are you trying to do? You're trying to avoid what? Don't make eye contact. Because if I see, if I see, I will feel and with the feeling and with the seeing comes an inherent call to do something. Paul Miller, in the book Love Walked Among Us, said this, we instinctively know that love leads to commitment. And so we look away when we see a beggar. We might have to pay if we look too closely and care too deeply. Loving means losing control of our schedule, our money, and our time. When we love, we cease to be the master and become a servant. Understand that Jesus' love is no mere therapy. It is, not, it is not cheap. His tears are not empty. His seeing does not fail to compel. He moves, he acts, and he pays the price for it. He pays the price. Because if we're going to see the heart of his compassion, even his severe love that brings suffering in our life, we have to see that he's willing to pay the price of compassion. 
But you notice the last line of the story, the last line of the text, I read it as an addendum at the end of the passage. When Jesus Christ raised Lazarus from the dead, on that day, that's the day when the, when the Pharisees go, we gotta do something about him. I mean, teaching, healing, these are nice, but suddenly if this dude has the power to raise people from the dead, we gotta deal with this problem. And Jesus knew that he makes a deliberate choice that if I interrupt the funeral of Lazarus, then I am beginning the dirge for my own. That if I interrupt here, the cost of it from, is gonna be my life. The action of Jesus here in raising Lazarus comes with a direct price tag, his own death, his own cross. And you can take comfort in this, O oh, oh sufferers, in the lengths and breadth that your God will go to not simply enter into your suffering, but to bear it in his own body. And understand that this changes the, one of the, the, the facets of our suffering. Well, one of the issues that is so debilitating about suffering is not just the fact that, man, has he, he for, forgotten me? Not just simply does he care, but we see that he hasn't forgotten us, he does care, he does act but also, does, does my suffering actually make my life meaningless? Does this thing I've lost actually make life feel arbitrary? You see, suffering can make us feel that way. That life is no longer, what's the point of living? I've lost my child. What's the point of living? I've lost my spouse. We're divorced. The place we find ourselves in, in the midst of grief and suffering, is often like that of Naomi in the book of Ruth. How does she describe herself? She's this woman who's lost her husband and she's lost her sons and she's going back from Moab to Israel and she comes back to Israel and they say, Naomi, and she says, don't call me Naomi, Naomi's dead. See, we, we tend to understand death, life and death in black and white. The ancients understood death and, and life in more of a continuum. But they understood that she was saying, listen, I may be physically still here, but that person, Naomi, she is gone. She's dead. I'm the walking dead. Call me bitter. That's all that's left. That's all that's left. And this is my great fear for those of you who have been in deep in sorrows and sufferings is that life would become pointless, hopeless, and in fact, devoid of meaning. And so the result of coming to a place where perhaps we don't reject God, but suffering has simply taken the air out of our sails for good. That we are on the mat and we are not getting up that we will drown in our sorrow and that we become people who are unwilling and unable to love those around us. We become simply a shell version of ourselves but because we view life as purposeless and meaningless now. But understand this. The cross, the price that Jesus is willing to pay fills suffering with meaning. Understand this, that a sovereign God who declares that he loves you and is willing to bring sorrow and suffering in your life this is not a new story. And it's not a story that is devoid of redemption because he sends his son, Jesus, to take on our suffering, to take on our sin and our shame. He experiences immense suffering, and yet his suffering, is it meaningless? Is it pointless? Actually, no, it's quite the opposite. The suffering of Jesus is filled with purpose to bring redemptive work in this world, to bring joy and forgiveness, to bring relief to suffering saints. And in other words, the cross tells us that, man, suffering may be difficult, may be hard, but it is not devoid of meaning and purpose. Jesus' suffering was filled with redemptive purpose. And so we can say with Paul, as he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, do not lose heart. That's hopelessness, losing heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In other words, the price that Jesus pays, Jesus pays in order to act on, upon your suffering, means that suffering is not meaningless. It actually fills your suffering with great meaning. Now understand this. Understand the perspective of 2 Corinthians 4. It is giving us eternal perspective to our suffering. We are not promised a, man, I lost a child, and therefore God brings redemption over here. Difficult isn't promised to show us those aspects of his plan. So there's very often, this is the difficulty, that there's so many sufferings in my life, I, I can't connect the dots to why they are there. And I would say it is a, there is, there is a great, it's a great act when you can see that. When you see God use your suffering in redemptive means in a temporal way, and you should acknowledge it, and it's wonderful, but I'd also say this, be careful not to write too short of a story. That often, if, we, if we're looking for temporal answers of like, he brought pain and suffering in my life, and that equaled redemption over here, if you're looking for that, you may be looking for a very, very long time. The promise and the goodness of the cross is that he brings meaning and purpose into your suffering and he may not tell you what it is and you may not know it until the other side of eternity, but he is bringing meaning and purpose through your suffering. And lastly, I would just say this. You have to understand the culmination of compassion, what Jesus does to understand his heart here. Jesus raises Lazarus, but I hate to put a damper on Jesus' miracle here. This is... This is Lazarus is going to die again. Like, this only buys Lazarus a little more time. This is, this, is, this, is not a re- this is not a resurrection. This is a resuscitation. This is Jesus with the heart thing that goes, and his heart comes back in. That is what this is, all right? Lazarus is not still wandering around the world 2,000 years later going, I'm still here, guys. No, he croaked a long time ago. In other words, Jesus' resurrection or resuscitation here There's there's something greater that has to be given to us, and this is why the resurrection of Jesus is at the core of our faith. Because Jesus merely gives us resuscitations here and there and healings to simply point to the greater resurrection that we ultimately need in Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't simply pay the price for our compassion. He doesn't come and suffer alongside us, and he takes our suffering and sin into his body. But then the story of the gospel is that he defeats death, not just once or twice or for a few people here or there, but he defeats death once and for all. And so Jesus says this when engaging with Martha in verses 23 through 25. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, no, 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 the resurrection is here because I, I am the resurrection and the life. It means if you really want to make it through suffering, you don't simply need someone to come and feel, see what you're feeling, see, going through and feel what you're feeling and act in a, in a way for you and, act, and give, try to connect some dots for the purpose of your suffering, but you need someone to ultimately deal with it and flip it upside down. And if you're going to be able to make it through suffering, then you actually have to know Jesus. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And what that means is when you come to him, when you know him, you get new life and life is restored. This is not, I'm going to put band-aids on your broken life in heaven. Heaven is not a cup of cold water. 
and I'm gonna, you're, we're all gonna be walking around with bandages on. No, heaven is, I'm gonna make you whole. I'm gonna, fu- I'm gonna reverse death in your life. And this is why to know Jesus, though you may die physically, though you may experience great and immense suffering in this world, that if you're connected to Jesus by faith, those sufferings are not final and they are not the final chapter of life. Jesus' resurrection shows us that our suffering has a purpose and also shows us that it has a greater end. And that end is joy. And it gives us courage and hope to continue to live through today. That I can have Jesus now. And he gives me courage and hope in life now. Sufferers can be drowned in suffering to the point that we are no, good, no longer good because we have, no, we have no courage to engage with the hurts of others. That we're so immersed in our own suffering and own depression and own sorrows and own death that we're on the mat and we don't, that even in the midst of love neighbor and we don't love God. But Jesus is saying, if you know me, that even in the midst of suffering, you can live a life and life abundant. You can live a life of loving your neighbor and loving me and experiencing my joy in life. Jesus is your comfort, your life, your resurrection, and therefore your courage for today in the midst of suffering. Let me end with this from a quote from a lady named Kara Tippett. She died a couple years ago, but she, she ran a blog. She was a prolific writer for a number of years, wrote a book following along with her own cancer battle. And at the time, she wrote this in her blog when she had gotten the word that there was no more treatment and she had only weeks to live. She said, my little body has grown tired of battle and treatment is no longer helping. But what I see and what I know and what I have is Jesus. He has still given me breath and with it I pray I would live well and fade well. Do you see that? Oh, I'm in the middle of suffering, but give me courage to love, to love well. By degrees doing both, living and dying as I have moments left to live, I get to draw my people close Kiss them and tenderly speak love over their lives. I get to pray into eternity my hopes and fears for the moments of my loves. I get to laugh and cry and wonder over heaven. I do not feel like I have the courage for this journey, but I have Jesus. I hope you do too. He is the resurrection and the life. And his heart for you is good and it's compassionate. Let's pray. Lord, for those in this room who are in the midst of suffering, Convince them of your heart for them. Lord, we pray it all the time. Lord, um, so fill it with meaning. Fill our prayers with meaning that when we say, Lord, come alongside somebody, will they experience your presence? We pray it again with a, a fuller understanding that they would have a deep sense that, you're, that they're, they would hear the grief of God over their suffering. They would see the tears of Jesus. That they would see that you're, you are with them, that you have not abandoned them. And they would they know your grief for them. And Lord, would they cling, when they cling tightly to the resurrection of Jesus, to the cross of Jesus, that tells us that our suffering is not devoid of meaning, but it's actually full of life. That through your suffering, Lord, you brought redemptive life, and through our suffering, you can bring life as well. And so would we cling to the cross, would we cling to the resurrection, and we cling to the very heart of Jesus looking at us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.